0: the time is now six o'clock welcome to wort's local news for thursday january 18th 2024 i'm your host sean bull
1: and i'm your host amy owen in tonight's news the dane county board's agenda is packed including a vote on additional borrowing for the jail consolidation project.
0: Madison's Transportation Commission met yesterday to discuss the proposed Amtrak line.
1: A state lawmaker is looking to tackle the epidemic of missing and murdered black women and girls. And in the
0: second half, some opens record law pet peeves, an icy fishing report, and the latest news from Madison's Flamingos.
1: This is Sean Bull and Amy Owen with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
0: A bill that would guarantee parental control over the pronouns a child uses in school passed today in the Republican-controlled state assembly. The Associated Press reports that the bill would also enable parents to withdraw their children from any class that conflicts with the family's personal beliefs. The measure, which passed by a vote of 62 to 35, will be considered next by the state Senate. Governor Tony Evers vetoed similar legislation last year.
1: An attempt to revive a Republican effort to impeach the head of the State Elections Commission is getting a skeptical eye from the party's legislative leaders, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Representative Janelle Branchen's resolution to impeach Commission Administrator Megan Wolf has gained little support. Assembly Majority Leader Tyler August said today during a news conference that the resolution will not come up for a vote because it has not advanced out of committee. He said the party caucus is, quote, focused on real things, not grifting and not making a big show for the cameras, unquote. The State Journal reports. Branchin and others seeking to impeach Wolf have tried to decertify Joe Biden's Wisconsin win in the 2020 presidential election.
0: Hunters could not kill antlerless deer in Wisconsin's northern hunting zone for several years under a bill several Republican lawmakers have introduced, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The number of bucks killed in the 2023 gun season was down almost 15% from the five-year average, Department of Natural Resources data shows, while the doe harvest was off more than 27%. Limiting doe hunting would help restore deer populations up north, the lawmakers say, The DNR blames the decline on on the severe prior winter, while some hunters claim that wolves are thinning the herd.
1: Research on Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia at UW-Madison is receiving a $150 million grant from the National Institutes of Health, the largest grant the school has ever received from the federal agency. The money will fund a nationwide study on the conditions in the brain that may cause dementia, The Capital Times reports. While Alzheimer's disease is the most widely known cause of dementia, it can also be the result of numerous other conditions. Moreover, researchers have found that dementia caused by several conditions at once is more common than the medical medical community previously believed.
0: Ice fishermen have had to play a waiting game for conditions to come around on Lake Mendota this season. In fact, the January 15th freeze update for the lake is the third latest in its recorded history. An unusually calm December kept conditions fluid on Madison's Big Lake until the current cold snap came around. On average, the lake ices up by December 20th. We'll have more on cold weather fishing later in the show.
1: The Madison-based video game studio Lost Boys Interactive is cutting about 125 jobs across across the country in the face of a challenging business environment, the Capital Times reports. The studio, which has worked on such games as Tiny Tina's Wonderland and Diablo 4, advised the State Department of Workforce Development last week that it would lay off 12 Wisconsin workers as of March 15. The cutbacks follow a period of soaring growth for the studio which was Wisconsin's third fastest growing company in 2022. A
0: man who strung cables at neck height across a Madison bike path will avoid jail time, WKOW-TV reports, citing Dane County court records. Curtis Tesmer, 34, agreed to plead guilty in October to two counts of recklessly endangering safety. Judge Josanne Reynolds withheld sentencing today and placed Tesmer on four years probation with the conditions that he abstain from alcohol and drugs and stay away from Madison bike trails.
1: A restoration specialist who has worked on the French Palace at Versailles, among other famous landmarks, is directing restoration work this winter on the Royal Thai Pavilion at the Ulbricht Botanical Gardens. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the pavilion, completed by Thai artisans in 2002, has not weathered well in the Wisconsin climate. The gardens. Brought in Javier De La Calle and his team of conservators to restore the building to its original glory. The pavilion is a rarity, one of only four such buildings worldwide outside of Thailand.
0: Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. The Dane County Board has a packed agenda for tonight's meeting. Supervisors are slated to vote on a number of resolutions, from the controversial airport lease agreement to the recognition of the National Day of Racial Healing. They're also expected to vote on the latest budget hike for the Dane County Jail Project, which has been stalled for years. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story.
2: Tonight, the Dane County Board is slated to vote on additional funding for the Jail Consolidation Project. If passed, the budget amendment would authorize just over $22 million in additional borrowing. Earlier this fall, only one contractor, Myron Construction, responded to the county's request for bids, and their bid was almost $28 million over budget. Three-fourths of the board must vote in favor in order to pass the budget amendment. Supervisor Patrick Miles is chair of the board and represents South Madison, he says that if the board does not approve the additional funding, their options are very limited moving forward.
3: We could choose to revisit the project in hopes of getting more respondents and a lower price bid. Or we could, in a sense, go back to the drawing board and revisit the scope of the project and try to come up with a plan for something that would be within the existing budget.
2: But Supervisor Miles says neither option is likely to go in the board's favor.
3: I'm not optimistic that we would get additional bidders and most likely not at a lower cost because more time goes by, the more inflation and competition drives up the labor and
4: material costs.
2: Supervisor Heidi Wegleitner of Madison's Near East Side opposes the jail project. She points out that Dane County has some of the worst racial disparities in incarceration rates in the country.
5: It's horrifying to me to think that we would spend 200... million dollars on a jail, not including interest to literally cement that white supremacy legacy into our (laughs) central city.
2: In 2017, researchers at the Prison Policy Initiative analyzed the incarceration rate for Black and Native residents in Wisconsin's county jails. That study found that there were almost seven times more Black residents and nearly 11 times more Native American residents than white residents in Wisconsin's county jails. Those disparities were even higher in state prisons. That analysis also found that the population of people in jails nationwide has more than tripled since the 1980s, with the biggest growth in people detained before their trial and an increasing number of jails renting space to other authorities. Wegleitner says there are better things to do with the extra county money toward the Dane County Jail. Things like affordable housing, which can help people who might be caught up in the
5: carceral system. There is a pending motion before the Dane County Circuit Court to close down to um, Madison and Dane County's first large-scale permanent supportive housing projects for people experiencing chronic homelessness. A key reason that's proposed to being shuttered is a lack of resources.
2: This budget hike in the jail project is just the latest in a series of roadblocks. Initially, members of the board's Black Caucus opposed the project entirely, and they introduced a plan that would have scaled down the jail in the hopes of reducing incarceration rates, but the plan failed to pass. The Black Caucus ultimately agreed to support the approved project's budget increase last spring after Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett agreed to remove federal inmates from the jail. Supervisor April Kigea represents Middleton and is a member of the Black Caucus. She says that while she believes the carceral system is deeply flawed, the conditions at Dane County Jail need to be fixed
5: as soon as possible. Even though I don't like the rate that black and brown folks are being jailed, they're in jail and, you know, at this point I can't do anything about that. But we can do something
1: about the conditions that they're in and that building that they're in is not safe.
5: Allie Bates
2: is co-chair of the Abolitionist Working Group of the Madison Area Democratic Socialists of America, or MADZA. MADSA opposes the jail project and advocates for the carceral system to be abolished entirely. Bates points out that it's possible to significantly reduce Dane County Jail's population because it's been done before.
6: There
5: are several things that the Sheriff's Department did during COVID to reduce the
2: prison population. You know, our question to the Sheriff's Department is, why can't you do that now? Supervisor Patrick Miles says, should the board approve increased borrowing for the jail project in tonight's meeting... The next step is to write up a formal contract with Myron Construction. The board would then vote on that contract. And if it is approved, he says construction would likely commence sometime this spring. Reporting for WORT News,
1: I'm Faye Parks. The plan to bring a passenger rail station to Madison is inching closer to reality. At yesterday's Transportation Commission meeting, city planners presented eight potential sites for the new Amtrak rail station. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. City planners have narrowed down the pool of
6: potential sites for the new Amtrak passenger rail station that would connect Madison to Milwaukee in the Twin Cities. There are four potential sites downtown, two at First Street near the future Madison Public Market, and two near the old Oscar Mayer plant at Commercial Avenue and at Eiberg Avenue. The downtown sites include Monona Terrace, And three other sites that run along the railroad next to the capital city trail at blair street livingston street and baldwin street the uw campus east side and airport corridors which were in the running in last year's study are no longer viable options city planner and project manager liz callan shared the results of the passenger rail identification study at last night's transportation commission meeting This afternoon, she told WORT more about the criteria used to select these eight sites. She says the study considered logistical matters like train operations and proximity to people, jobs, and destinations. Equitable access was also a concern, namely how different groups are able to access the sites and what other modes of transportation are accessible from each site. Along with these criteria, Callen says the study looked at environmental impacts, land use, and planned land use. Callen says all eight sites have opportunities and challenges.
5: Generally speaking, the sites that are located downtown tend to be stronger when it comes to proximity to people, jobs, and destinations. We think it'll be easier generally for people to get to the station who want to use it to get out of Madison, Um, and then also people who are coming to Madison, it will be easier for them to get to their final destination, whether that be a hotel, um, conference, you know maybe an entertainment venue so the downtown sites are stronger in that regard but they're a little bit more tricky when it comes to rail operations so the train would have to come in further into madison onto the isthmus um, and then reverse directions back out so it's a little bit more time-consuming um, for some of the further out options near the future Madison Public Market and then up on the former Oscar Mayer site. Uh, those are a little bit easier from a rail operations perspective, um, but you know they don't quite have that proximity to as many people and as many of the popular destinations in Madison.
6: In addition to meeting Madison's needs, the new train station will need to meet several standard requirements from Amtrak. These guidelines include an approximately 3,200-square-foot station building, a 700-foot platform, compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the capacity for train layover and servicing overnight. At last night's Transportation Commission meeting, City Alders and members of the public asked questions about safety, rail use, and proximity to the BRT line. If you have questions or want to comment on where you think the Amtrak station should be located, you can attend one of two upcoming meetings. The first meeting is Tuesday, January 30th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Madison Municipal Building. A virtual public meeting is scheduled for Tuesday, February 6th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler.
0: According to a 2020 analysis from the CDC, Wisconsin is one of the deadliest states for black women and girls. That year, 42 out of every 100,000 black women and girls were murdered in our state. Representative Sheila Stubbs, a Democrat from Madison, says it's time to address this epidemic of violence. Earlier today, she spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks to discuss a bill that would create a fact and solution finding task force.
2: Thank you for joining me, Representative Stubbs. Thank you. So to start, can you walk us through the issue at hand? What is the latest information on violence against Black women and girls in Wisconsin? In
3: 2020, 90,333 Black women and girls were reported missing in our country. Black women and girls represent 33.5% of missing women in the U.S. that year. Furthermore, in 2020, five Black women were killed every day in the United States. There was a nationwide increase of 33% in homicide rates of black women and girls from 2019 to 2020. And again, I'm going to pin specifically on the year 2020 that the homicide rate of black women nationally was eight out of 100,000 compared to their white counterparts, which was two per 100,000. And so in the state of Wisconsin, our numbers were the worst. However, the state of Minnesota is the first legislature nationally to do something around missing and murdered African-American women task force. And it was led by former state representative Ruth Richardson and Minnesota state senator, assistant minority leader, Mary Kanash, in recognizing the structural issues leading to the increased disappearance of murders of African-American women and girls. So we have a problem. We have a national problem. And so it behooved me to live in the state of Wisconsin, have the worst disparity from 2020, and not begin any work. So this was intentional work to try and bring attention to this work. But I also wanted to say, through this work, I was able to learn about a family that experienced the missing and murder aspect of this bill. And her name is Georgia Hill. Her daughter, Lashiki Hill, became missing last year, one day before she turned 46 years old in Racine, Wisconsin, her case was featured on Dateline, and so it gave Ms. Hill an opportunity to come into her state capitol, speak with legislators on the importance of this legislation and why we need to get this legislation at least structured in the state of Wisconsin to begin to bring these victims back to their families or at least give the families some level of closure.
2: You've proposed this bill that would establish a DOJ task force. I'm curious, what exactly would this task force do? What are
3: its goals? First of all, the task force is 17 members. It would be four legislators, two Democrats, two Republicans, three representatives from law enforcement, four representatives from legal experts, two representatives from the field of gender violence, three organizations that directly aid Black female victims, And we're going to have two representatives that are survivors around this work. There are five duties that this task force is going to examine. First, we have to look at the systemic causes behind the violence that African-American women and girls experience. This includes patterns, underlining factors that explain why we have such disproportionate High levels of violence that occur with African-American women and girls, including something that's happened historically or generational or social or economic or institutional or cultural factors which may contribute to the violence. Yesterday when Ms. Heal was testifying, she talked about when she reported her daughter was missing, that was within 48 hours of her disappearance. She was asked a question and said, do you know your daughter has a warrant? Because she had just run away. And Ms. Heal said, all I wanted them to do is start the process of searching for my daughter. And so again, there are some underlining factors that play a role in getting started immediately for women. The other... Four factors, really quick, is the appropriate method for tracking and collecting data on violence against African American women and girls. This includes collecting more data around missing and murdered African American women and girls. We know in the state of Wisconsin, we don't do a good job collecting data. So we want to be very clear that this is an area that we need to work on, because in order to come up with strategies or practices or policies around this work, you need the data. We had Chief Sean Barnes, Madison Police Chief, testify on yesterday, and he talked about resources. He said, all of our departments want to bring a closure to families, but we all lack different levels of resources. He said, I've worked from agencies with 90,000 people to 30,000. They all lack appropriate resources or enough resources. So he was able to back that up. We also have to look at policies and institutions such as, you know, policies around child welfare, corner practices, impact violence against African American women and girls, gender violence. We also need to measure necessarily to reduce violence against African American women. So if we know it exists, how do you reduce those factors? And then finally, we need to measure how to help victims. This legislation is victim-driven, victim-focused legislation. Yesterday, when we heard Ms. Georgia Hill speak, she talked about the services that she needed. She talked about the support system. She talked about the healing process. She talked about not wanting this to happen to any other family across the world. She said, what I experienced and how I was treated, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. In fact, she called it a nightmare. And so I think that's really important that we stay focused on our duties on this task force, keep it very centered around victims, but require some results.
2: I understand that you've attempted to pass similar legislation in past sessions. What happened then? And do you believe your colleagues will approve the task force this time around?
3: I'm hopeful because the initial bill that I introduced last session were only Democrats. I could not find a Republican who would partner with me on the bill. This time, I was able to get a Republican from both houses, and I was able to get Senator Johnson to be the Democratic lead on the Senate side and Senator James, the Republican lead, and partner with Representative Straw in the assembly. So it's hopeful when it is bipartisan, and I'm hopeful that we'll get it passed because these colleagues realize that we have a problem, and we don't want one more family to be a victim of this. And let's also talk about, at the same time, we're doing work around human trafficking. We just completed that task force work. So it makes sense to work side by side in the same arena and the same levels of victims. So I'm very hopeful on this bill.
2: I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
3: Again, I want to thank you because this is the first start to get media to cover these families, these victims, And the one thing I would say on yesterday that was so impactful when Ms. Georgia Hill spoke, she asked us to remember her daughter's name and her name is Lashiki Hill. Say her name. Thank you
2: again for taking the time to speak with me, Representative Stubbs. Thank
3: you. And please feel free to reach out to my office, 608-266-3784. We also have a hashtag, support MMAAWG, which is Missing and murdered African American Women and Girls. Reach me by email, rep.sub at ledges.wisconsin.gov. Reach out to me. I want to start collaborating, working with law enforcement, and let's begin to bring these families back home or at least give them closure.
1: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Amy Owen, here with my co-host, Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us.
0: This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and open records attorney, Tom Kamenick, discuss some typical pet peeves when requesting public records and what to do to avoid these annoying but legal technicalities. As always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues.
7: I'm joined by Tom Kamenick, Open Records attorney and all-around good guy. Hello, Tom. Hello, Dylan. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Let's talk about some pet peeves. What are some of the biggest pet peeves that you hear from your clients and and from the public? Well, let
4: me make a distinction here and kind of define my terms. When I say a pet peeve, I'm not talking about breaking the law because I don't mind when they break the law so much because that gives me stuff to do. <laughs> it gives me something obvious I can, I can go after. But uh, when I'm talking about a pet peeve, I mean that they're doing something that's either legal or skating in the gray area, but it's just obnoxious because it's absolutely unnecessary and it does not further the cause of transparency. So it's things that they've learned that they can get away with. Yeah, and like what we've talked about many
7: times, there are some some holes in the laws that records custodians can use to their advantage, potentially. We'll assume they're all doing this with good intentions, but it can get a little annoying. And one of those things you talk about uh, is
4: fees, sandbagging fees. What do you mean by that? So the, the law allows the custodians to charge for some of the costs of responding to a record request. The The two big ones are for making photocopies and for uh, for location fees, which is typically... Uh, the time it takes somebody to search through records and actually find them before they can review them and turn them over to you. So you'll get sometimes a custodian say, well, our location charge is going to be $60, pay that upfront, you go ahead, pay that a couple weeks, maybe a month later, they say, actually, it took a lot longer, and it's actually going to be $500. And you won't get your records until you pay that amount. Technically, that's legal because they just are allowed to charge their their cost of location. But you're out the 60 bucks already. And if you can't afford the extra charge, there's not much you're, you're doing about that. Uh, there's nothing in the law that limits them to what their initial quote is. How
7: much is the most you've ever seen in terms of a location fee or some sort of fee? Oh, uh, I've seen some in the five figures, so tens of thousands of dollars. Well, hopefully those were big requests because uh, I've been quoted over a thousand for a few hundred pages.
4: What can you do, yeah, right? There, you got to just pony up. One I remember was it, it did involve a massive search of of a lot of old paper records. You know, thankfully, the in the modern times, the electronic records are much easier to search usually than the old paper records. But on the other hand, there's just a lot more records. There's a lot more electronic files that exist than ever existed in the paper days so it's it's a bit of a trade off you know so they have uh, yeah
7: maybe they just don't review course. them as thoroughly i don't think people would mind that
4: <laughs> all right so what no.
7: what can you do when you all of a sudden you think you're getting your records you, you put down 60 bucks
4: but now it's you know much higher ideally you you start early and and try to head this problem off before it comes Um, it's to make sure that they understand the scope of your request and you understand what they're searching. So if they give you a quote for a price of how much, ask them, what are you going to be searching through? Are you searching through boxes or is this electronic? Are these off-site? Is it just one file cabinet? Is it one folder? Sometimes even electronic records can't be searched quickly if they're if they've been archived, sometimes individual archive files need to be unzipped and brought up and searched one at a time, so that can take a lot. So you can talk about narrowing your request. Uh, you, you can certainly negotiate and bring up that after this happens to say, "Look, you you told me it was going to be this much, sixty dollars. Now you're, now you're telling me five hundred dollars." You know, that, that's a really bad look for you. You know, if, if are you doing this a lot? You don't you shouldn't Ooh, be sandbagging yeah. people like this. Can we can we find a way to to reach a compromise on this? You, know, you can always ask for a reduction on it. There, there is a particular provision of the law that says that they can waive any charges. So don't ever let them tell you we have to charge you this.
7: Another one that one of uh, pet peeves when dealing with open records is you ask for a record that and they come back with, oh, we don't have that record give
4: us some examples of where this has come up in your work you need to be very careful what you're asking for the, the law says that you can ask for a record so specifically if you ask a question how much was budgeted for the police department last year that's not a record request uh if they, they don't have to answer it ideally I, I would hope they would for their for their constituents but they don't have to it's not a record request even if you phrase it as a request just for information, can you provide me how much the the police department budget was that's not the same thing you need to ask for a record so even if so ideally you know the name of the record i want the police department's budget for uh you know budget document for the last year if if, if you know a form number if you know the name of something that's the best way if you don't you can still get information like that you still have to phrase it as a request for a record so you say I am requesting records that show what the police department's budget was for last year. So as as long as you phrase it as a request for a record, that can get around that. Sometimes you might ask for, like a lot of times I've seen people ask for like a list of things, like I want a list of all uh, all the employees and their salaries in the department. If you get a response saying, we don't have a responsive record, we don't have that record, one of the best things to do is ask the custodian, "Well, what do you have? What records are in your office that would have that information on that?" And if you've you've got a custodian like they very often do take their responsibilities seriously, they, they will help you identify that. You know, it's it's in their best interest to help you get what you want with a minimum of effort as well. So if there's a single document in their possession, that answers your question. They might be willing to to tell you what that is, so you can ask for it. Don't get tripped up by semantics.
7: Is is the point. And I would say Don't by and large, most public, answer, yeah, yeah. most public records custodians aren't, aren't out to trick you so uh, blatantly, but Hey, you know, they got, they could, if they wanted to. So be careful of that. All right. Well, finally, Tom, um, you know, one thing that's very frustrating, you ask for a record and then it turns out it's just kind of a, it's kind of a bad record. Like, it's incomplete because it, not because they didn't give it to you, but just because it should have information, but doesn't. So walk us through that one. So the record law does not require them
4: to create certain records for you so if they don't have what you're looking for even if they're supposed to have it the record law doesn't require them to create it i see this come up up a lot in minutes minutes for governmental body meetings of you know your last city council meeting the school board meeting if they don't have the minutes you can't request them yet if they have minutes and they're really really sparse and they barely say anything well that's the document you have and that's what they're gonna get if they're not keeping good minutes that's uh that's a political issue and and you know you vote the bums out if they're not doing a good job of that but uh i'll be honest i minutes these days are, are about as bare as they can possibly be from most places that i see i feel like that they, they feel like they don't want to get plot on anything. So they do the absolute bare minimum. Well, we've definitely seen
7: this with larger government organizations, but let's hope the trend continues. And I think the pandemic really sped it along. Hey, record these meetings. They should be able to, you should be able to attend them virtually. You should be able to watch them later and any good local official should encourage that.
4: Yeah. And sometimes you find things on the recording that are, that are different than the official minutes. And you can bring that up to your local government and say, well, you know, your, your minutes say that you voted to spend four hundred thousand dollars on this project, but I watched the recording and the motion was three hundred thousand dollars, and that needs to be corrected, and, and you can try to get them to do that. Attorney Tom Kamenek,
7: keeping us all honest. Thank you so much, Tom. Hey, you're welcome, Dylan. And remember everybody, if you don't ask,
4: you won't
1: know. After days of bitter sub zero temperatures, ice has finally formed enough on Madison's lakes to make it safe to ice fish. Ice anglers rejoice. Nate Weggiehaupt and Pat Hasberg break down what's happening and an event to keep an eye on in this week's Fishy Business.
8: Alrighty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it is a balmy 13 degrees outside as we're recording this uh, Thursday morning here which I mean it feels balmy compared to what we've had the last couple of days which is just a bitter cold but that's bitter cold probably actually a pretty good thing as far as ice fishing goes because uh, hey we finally have some ice on the on the lakes is that right that's right it's uh, quite a turnaround
9: from the last time we spoke it's uh, we went from having no ice virtually around anywhere in the Madison area to in just a week, now we've got basically everything covered up with ice and, and folks are definitely get out, getting out fishing.
8: Well, let's just start right there then, now that we finally have some ice fishing to talk about. What's been what's been happening around Madison with the ice fishing?
9: Well, the shallow areas around town are, are the ones that are have seen the most traffic. They're the ones that freeze over first. So areas like Cherokee Marsh here on the north side and uh, Monona Bay and the Triangles downtown off Lake Monona. And uh, to a slightly lesser extent, Lake Wingra have been seeing uh, some folks getting out. The bigger lakes, Manona Mendo- and Mendota, uh, have frozen over more recently, uh, but folks generally aren't getting out there just quite yet as that ice is a little newer.
8: Now, uh, is anybody able to be getting out on, let's just start going down the list, Lake Mendota? Have you heard anything coming out of there yet or is that still a little early?
9: Uh, yeah, well, there are a few folks getting out of Mendota in areas like Warner Bay has uh, three to four inches of ice right now. Um, there's some folks getting out near the Union downtown. And, of course, Ch- uh, Cherokee Marsh is considered technically Lake Mendota. So folks have been up there uh, all week. And uh, the, on, on Cherokee Marsh, they have anywhere from six to 12 inches up there. So plenty of ice for folks to get out on, on, uh, on what's
8: technically Mendota. And now I know some people are getting out on Monona a little bit. Uh, I actually saw some coming in earlier today. So what's been happening on Monona?
9: Well, like I said, um, uh, Monona Bay and the Triangles have been seeing a lot of traffic there off John Nolan Drive. I'm sure anybody that drives through there has seen some folks out. Um, but uh, on Lake Monona itself, there, from the reports I hear, there seems to be anywhere from three to five inches uh, pretty consistently across the entire lake. And, um, yeah, folks are getting out in areas like Trival Bay, Wekawak Bay, and uh, the areas along John Nolan Drive a little bit there. But for the most part, like I said, it's not quite safe for ATV traffic, but it's very soon here. We, got, we, got, we still got quite a bit of cold weather coming through the weekend, and, and I believe uh, we'll be seeing folks all over Lake Monona very soon.
8: Yeah, just like any time we talk about ice fishing, uh, be safe out there. Know uh, no how thick like the ice is before you get out on there. But yeah, we do still have a, it's supposed to warm up a little bit early next week, which would be good enough to uh, free up the roads a little bit, but uh, not enough to really, I think, do too much damage to the ice or anything like that. So we should be getting some more ice here pretty soon. So let's keep going down the list and hit Lake Wingra. What's happening there?
9: Uh, Lake Wingra is, you know, a smaller body of water and has ice on it. Folks generally out there, it's more of a numbers game. If you've got a young person you'd like to take out and and maybe introduce some tight fishing. That's a great spot because there's lots of smaller fish in there, but you know, folks uh, set out tip ups with uh, larger minnows and do well with, uh, for pike and uh, occasionally a muskie. Of course, muskie season is cold. You're not allowed to target those fish, but every now and then you'll get one of them too. But uh, yeah, some great action on Wingra for sure. And what about Wabisa, what's happening? Wabisa iced over uh, early uh, last week or earlier, earlier this week. Folks have been getting out in the Lake Farm area and down near uh, Babcock Park and and Bible Camp areas in the south end of the lake. I haven't heard much in the way of reports because everything's so new, it all came on so quick here. But usually that Lake Farm area is a a great spot for pike and bluegills and a good walleye spot down there by Babcock and and the Bible Camp areas on the south end of the lake.
8: All right. And final lake that we're going to look at today, the Forever Mystery Caganza. Have you heard anything coming out of Caganza?
9: Yep, absolutely. There's folks getting out on Kiganza. I've heard of ATV traffic out there, but just like Kiganza uh, always is, it, it can be hit or miss. I haven't heard much in the way of, of good reports so far, but, you know, it's it, it, all that stuff can change uh, day to day. So you're, you're definitely not going to catch fish at home, so get out there and give it a shot.
8: And now, last time we talked, uh, we talked about how trout fishing season uh, officially opened a couple of weekends ago. Now, I think two weekends ago. Uh, what have you been hearing out of out of that? What's been the trout bite like?
9: Well, the opening weekend, we actually had some pretty decent temps for getting out. We had you know mid thirties, which is you know definitely comfortable to be out walking along a stream. Heard about some folks getting into some good fish, mostly fishing in deeper pools and corners and running lures uh, slowly through those areas. When the, when the, when the water is this cold, trout are a little more lethargic, so they're not in the mood to chase down a, a fast-moving uh, lure. But, of course, uh, this early trout season is uh, artificials only, so no live bait can be used and all the fish have to be immediately released. But it's a great time to get out and explore some of the great trout water we have in the area.
8: And now finally, just real quick, because we're going up against the clock a little bit, have you heard anything coming out of the area rivers? The Wisconsin River, Yahara, Rock, anything like that?
9: Not since this cold has moved in. Once the cold moves in, uh, a lot of the launches tend to lock up, and, and it's, just, it's just hard navigating a river. You get chunks of ice floating around, so it can be uh, a little difficult out on the rivers. But it, once, once we get a little bit of warmth, that, that'll, that'll all change.
8: And now finally coming up here in a couple weekends, I believe, uh, is what you told me before we started recording. Uh, the Ahara Fishing Club is having a kids fishing day coming up here. What can you tell me about that?
9: That's right. Uh, the Ahara Fishing Club is a group that's been around since uh, 1945 here in Madison uh, promoting fishing uh, and especially getting young people introduced to fishing. So they do a, a kids fishing, two kids fishing events, one in the summer and one in the winter. Their winter event is coming up on Lake Manon on Monona Bay, sorry, down at Birmingham Park on the 27th. So that'd be next Saturday from 9 a.m. to 12. And so if you've got a young person and you, know, you think they might be interested in ice fishing or, or if you want to go down with your young person and, and, you know, you've been interested in getting into ice fishing, they, they offer free poles and members from the club there are there for instruction, free bait. Uh, we, we're happy to provide the bait for that event. And uh, they have hot dogs and and sodas and and all kinds of stuff for kids. And the, and the whole thing is free. So if you're looking for something to do on the 27th, the morning of the 27th, go down and check it out. It's, it's really a great event.
8: I do remember as a kid going down to uh, kids fishing days for various fishing clubs. And they, they were always a great time. So, yeah, go check it out. The 27th. And yeah, go check that out. Well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy number, that's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week and good luck out
9: there. Thanks Nate, always a pleasure. Take care.
0: While Breeze Stevens Field may appear quiet this time of year, Forward Madison FC's coaching staff are still busy rounding out the roster for the 2024 season. Just two months out from the start of a new league campaign, Forward Focus talks to the Flamingos head coach about recent signings.
10: Hello again and welcome to everyone listening to WORT Online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. This is another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for cultural and Forward Madison theme magazine, New Dogma Zine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. When we last left you, Andrew and I sat down with Ford Madison's head coach and technical director Matt Glazer to get his final thoughts on 2023 and to get an update on new signings as Glazer and his staff continue to round out the squad for 2024. Ford Madison has added two more signings since then, inking proven league commodities Devin Boyce and Juan Galindrez. Andrew sat down again with Matt for this week's episode, to get his thoughts on the signings as well as what fans can expect from new players coming to Madison for the upcoming season. Andrew, take it away.
11: We're joined again by Matt Glazer, head coach and technical director of Forward Madison FC. Matt, hope you're well. Thank you again for joining us on our local news segment on WRT Forward Focus. First things first... Two new signings since the last time we chatted with you. Both known quantities in USL1 uh, have seen time playing a division above us in the championship. What do those guys bring to a new-look Madison team?
12: Yeah, uh, yeah. first of all, thanks for having me again. Always a a pleasure to to jump on. Um, We're really excited about both uh, Devin and uh, Juan Galindros, Devin Boyce and Juan Galindros. Two, two very good players, guys that are that are proven at our level, guys who have championship experience. I think a big uh, a big thing that we've tried to hit this offseason has been adding in players that have proven it in, in League One. Both of those guys have been a part of uh, successful League One teams. And I think Juan's, you know, top 10 all-time leading scorer in the league and, you know, 20-plus 20, 20 goals um, in a couple of seasons in Chattanooga. Um, Devin's obviously won a, won a championship with Omaha. Um, So, so yeah, no, like really, really pleased to add those guys both have good footballing backgrounds. We feel like adding in sort of leadership guys that have been there and done it know what to expect from the, from the league, the competition, the travel, um, the adaptability component is so important. Yeah, really excited, really excited with both those signings and think they'll, they'll add a lot to the group.
11: So Devin Boyce, uh, having watched him play before for both Greenville and Union Omaha, where he he won the USL One League title, he is a player who has a little bit of an edge, a little bit of grit to his style of play. Is that something that you're intentionally looking to add this season?
12: Yeah, 100%. Obviously, I guess, for, first of all, having lost uh, Andrew Wheeler, um, Amonu this season, um, we need to replace that position, that grit, that intensity, um, that box-to-box ability, so you know i think devin is is a guy who who has that obviously his own his own his own version of himself uh, uh, you know the type of guy who who has that tenacity who has that um box to box ability um not afraid to tackle um can can play uh, you know, a couple of different positions. So he's got that versatility. He can certainly play interior middle of the park, kind of a box to box midfield player that we like to work with a lot of times in a, in a double pivot or with three midfielders, um, and then can play out wide too. if he needs to, and yeah, just a guy who, who has a chip on his shoulder, has something to prove and, and uh, wants to win and, and has won before.
11: Juan Glendres, uh proven goal scorer in this league, uh, playing for Chattanooga, played you know 55 games for them in 2021-22 20, season, uh, scored 25 goals, It's almost a a you know two two to one ratio as far as games to goals, which is like the the, the metric of a top striker in any given league. It, it's it's clear that there's an intention bringing guys like Sharif Dier like that you're you're trying to bolster and give options up on the attack has that been a point of focus during recruiting this offseason
12: yeah 100% i mean like we like i said you, you look at the stat sheet um when we do our sort of end of the year reassessment and, and analysis um, we see that you know our, our XG is is quite good, top four or five in the league. So so that means we're we're creating chances, but but our conversion rate has to improve. So so we've obviously gone out and tried to add a, another player um, who has a high conversion rate. You know, like you mentioned, his ratio is quite good in front of the goal. And uh, yeah, just another another handful really, another another big profile. He can move, uh, knows how to move, can score in different ways. I think it allows us to be a little bit more, my hope is that it allows us to be a little bit more multidimensional in the way that we can attack opposition. Um, and yeah, potentially having two, two big boys up there um, um, could only help us, I think.
11: Yeah, so last year and the year prior to that, you know, you'd hear commentators during the broadcast when we play away or even at home, you know, saying things like, oh, that was a trademark, Madison worked goal. Lots of passing, lots of sort of triangular motion and fluidity around the ball. Has the point been to, you know, as you've alluded to and when we've talked with you in past weeks, to be able to, as you just mentioned, have a different dimension, be able to switch up tactics, maybe play a little more direct than we're used to?
12: I think it's 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 possible, you know. I think you want to be, like I said, you want to be as multidimensional as you can be um, in the way you attack, certainly. Um, um, and I think, you know, look at the end of the day, whether you're. Even if you're, even if you're a team that wants to to progress the ball on the ground and and, and play through the thirds like we've been the last few years, um, you have to be able to to isolate certain areas of the field to, to hold the ball up and progress. You have to be able to play beyond the press at times. So having the guys that can hold the ball up and, and run off one another um, is is going to be key, no matter how you play. Um, and but the ability for us to be a little bit more maybe. aerially um, aerially competent up there that that helps us that in terms of getting balls in the box from, from wide areas, we've mostly been a team that's, that's not um, just kind of hanging. And I'm not saying we're going to turn into a team that's just hanging the ball up in the box. But I think being able to create chances in different ways and, and meet different objectives rather than sort of inter- internal combination, slip passes has, has been a way that we've scored a lot of goals, transitions. We, we, we want to continue to improve and, and be good in those moments. That's certainly um, just another way that I hope we can, can add a dimension to, to what we do. That will do it for this week.
10: We'd like to thank Ford Madison's Matt Glazer for coming on again and hope that you'll join us again in two weeks as Andrew and I continue to keep you up to date on all the news, updates, and stories coming out of Bree Stevens Field as preparations continue for the 2024 campaign and Ford Madison's pursuit of a USL1 title. Thanks again for joining us. And for WORT, this has been Ford Focus.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Peter Voller and Russ Mackey were your headline writers. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan and Tom Kamenick, Nate Wegehaupt and Pat Hasberg, and the Forward Focus crew. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Amy Owen.
0: And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night!